This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 37. We're looking this evening at a passage that is sandwiched between two similar yet distinct passages. Those two passages have to do with Jeremiah meeting with King Zedekiah, the final king uh, of Judah, a puppet, really, of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, in the first instance, chapter 37, verses 1 through 10, the king asked that Jeremiah would pray for Jerusalem to the Lord. And he does that. The army uh, of the Chaldeans who had besieged Jerusalem, verse 5 tells us, had withdrawn. So they received something of a break something of a pause in the, in the siege, which itself was encouraging, and yet Jeremiah's message is, don't deceive yourselves, verse 9. The Chaldeans, thinking the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, they won't. Jeremiah says in verse 10, even if you should defeat the whole army, uh, and, and they're all wounded in their tents, yet they would rise up and uh, burn this city with fire. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Though they've fallen away for now, don't think they've, they've gone away. And then the final instance at the end is uh, 38, 14 through following, where Zedekiah actually sends for Jeremiah and has a question for him. Uh, what's the word from the Lord? What, what's going on? Zedekiah uh, had a great deal of respect for Jeremiah, but Zedekiah really didn't have a spine. And he was not his own man. He was very much uh, uh, beholding, beholden to the uh, powers in Jerusalem, to the influential people there. And uh, while he had some sympathy for Jeremiah, as we'll see, uh, was not quite the man he should have been toward Jeremiah. And so he asked Jeremiah, what, what's going on? And Jeremiah basically says the same thing. You need to surrender. And in, in, a, in a moment of strange honesty, Chapter 38, 19, King Zedekiah says, I'm afraid of the Judeans who've deserted the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. Uh, he was afraid of those who had already been taken to Babylon, and many of them were still pro-Jehoiakim, saw Zedekiah as, uh, as a pawn of, of Nebuchadnezzar and opposed him. And Zedekiah just comes out and says, look, I'm afraid of those people. I'm afraid of what they're going to do to me. And Jeremiah says, well, you won't be given to them if you obey the voice of the Lord, but if not, uh, all bets are off. Verse uh, 23, you yourself shall not escape from their hands, but be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. And Zedekiah just says to Jeremiah there at the end, well, don't tell anybody we met. If somebody asks you about it, just say that I, I came to ask the king not to send me back to the house of Jonathan. And that's exactly how it plays out. Now, in between those two passages, similar but distinct, these meetings between Jeremiah and Zedekiah, we have the passage I want us to look at tonight, which focuses on some of the trials uh, that, that Jeremiah endured. So let's look, begin our reading at chapter 37, verse 11. 
Now, when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, out of Egypt, of course, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. When he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Erijah, son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. Jeremiah said, It is a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Erijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. The officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you've put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land? Now, hear please, O my lord the king. Let my humble plea come before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan's secretary, lest I die there. So King Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard, and a loaf of bread was given him daily from the baker's street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given in the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Jeremiah's message, of course, we, we know that now. Then the officials said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who were left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. There was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. When Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. They'll die there of hunger, for there's no bread left in the city. And the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take three men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. 
And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that we have read tonight. Thank you for your servant, Jeremiah. And Lord, we pray that as we look at his life and what he endured here, that we would learn from that, learn from your word, those things that you would teach us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, It is required of a steward that he be found trustworthy or faithful. In other words, steward, having had some charge committed to his care, must carry out that charge. Well, Jeremiah was given a stewardship. That stewardship was the message of the Lord, to be a mouthpiece, a spokesman for God. It might be useful at this point, at this point in our study of Jeremiah, to turn back to chapter 1 and just to remind ourselves of that commission, that stewardship that was given to Jeremiah. In verse, in chapter 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. The Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. That was the stewardship. That was the commission that he gives to Jeremiah to go where the Lord sends him, to say what the Lord tells him to say, not to be afraid because the Lord would be with him. The Lord's put his word in his mouth, has set him over nations and over kingdoms. And some of that would be in judgment. In fact, the predominance of it would be, as we see from pluck up and break down, destroy and overthrow, but also a word of hope, a message of restoration to build and to plant. So that's the stewardship, to be a mouthpiece for God. Sounds great, right? The voice of God here on earth, speaking the very word of God. You know, some men go into the ministry with this idea, they're going to get out and stand in the pulpit, and everyone's going to revere them as the oracle of God in their midst. And they actually enter with that, that thought in mind. Uh, maybe Jeremiah had that thought in mind. Uh, maybe that the Lord said, do not be afraid of them, should have been a hint to him of the trials and the ordeals that were, that, that were to come. Well, certainly it's an honor, and yet it's not easy. Faithfulness is required. Faithfulness can be hard. Trustworthiness, faithfulness in this stewardship can be difficult. There is a price to faithfulness. That was true for Jeremiah. We've seen that, and we see it in the passage here tonight. But it wasn't unique to Jeremiah. Faithfulness had a price we see with all kinds of people in the Scriptures, as we've seen with people in the years between the days of Scripture and now, and as we know in our own lives, to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful to the callings that he's called us to and to the people that he's put in our path exacts a cost. There's a price to faithfulness. 
And so as we look at this passage, we want to look at what Jeremiah endured, but we also want to see that this is not, in a sense, unique. His, his circumstances were unique, his day, a siege, the kinds of things he endured, but others in Scripture paid a similar price to be faithful. And we will see that we, too, may endure some of these same kinds of things, if not the exact particulars that Jeremiah endured. Well, the first thing that we see here that's required, a price involved in faithfulness, is personal discomfort. Personal discomfort. And that may come in the form of physical discomfort, but it may also come in the form of emotional or spiritual discomfort as well. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now, when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. This was a time of siege. There was a break, yes, and during that time we read that Jeremiah went out to Benjamin to receive his portion. We don't know exactly what that means or how that relates back to chapter 32 where Jeremiah purchased the piece of land that we talked about back then. Uh, At that time he was actually imprisoned. Here he still has his liberty, at least at this point. So they may have been related, but they may have been two two different situations. We just don't know. But the point is, the siege lifted enough so that he could go and check on this, he and others. But this personal discomfort comes in and that Jeremiah is here in the city, suffering along with his people, even as he calls them to faithfulness to the Lord, repent to the Lord, and then when that doesn't happen, he calls them to willingly surrender to the Babylonians. But Jeremiah is there. He's present. He hasn't left. He hasn't gone away. He is there suffering with his people. He was not exempt from that because he was a godly man. Uh, Notice uh, the the, the kinds of things that are described in chapter 38, verse 2. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, die by famine, die by pestilence, Those are the things of siege warfare. It's ugly. It's scary. It's horrific. They were beginning to endure those kinds of things, and Jeremiah was right there in the middle of it, enduring it with them. How tempting it would be to do exactly what they accuse him of doing, and to say, that's fine. I'm out of here. I'm gone. You know, If they just want to suffer and die like this, I've told them that's all I can do. And he goes away. Well, that's not what what he was doing. Here he was. He was in the city. He identified with his people. He suffered along with his people. Another example of that. In fact, some pretty striking examples of that we find in the New Testament with the with the ministry of Paul. A couple of examples in Second Corinthians six uh, that that while different in circumstance from Jeremiah, are right there along with him. A similar kind of price to be paid for faithfulness. Notice, notice what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 4. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How? By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, 
And he goes on through this list, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, he says, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. You're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. You know, Jeremiah could have said these things as he preached the message of God seemingly to deaf ears, but suffered along with his people the very consequences for their sin. Again, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists that familiar uh, account of, of his sufferings in his faithfulness, the price of his faithfulness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul admits, this is ridiculous, I'm, I'm talking like a madman, you know, because there were these others who put themselves up as themselves up as super apostles, and Paul doesn't want to compare himself to them. Uh, and in fact, he he boasts that the things that he puts forward are not his strength, but his weakness, his suffering. Eleven twenty three. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Talking like a madman, he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. That's personal discomfort. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Ouch. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, oh yeah, apart from all of that, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's quite a list. That's some pretty serious personal discomfort, both bodily and in the heart. But, you know, even with that list of Paul's, you think of personal discomfort being the price of faithfulness. You look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as Paul so eloquently puts it in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, which, by the way, means becoming one of us. Uh, he, he emptied himself of the glory of his deity. He did not give up his deity, but emptied himself of its glory, taking a human body, a human nature, becoming one of us, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. You know, we, we you sometimes hear the expression incarnational ministry. And what that ba- basically means is, is ministry by being there, being present. And Jesus, of course, defines that. He was incarnate. He was present here with us when he did not have to be and endured personal discomfort for our sake that he did not have to endure other than obedience to the covenant of redemption he'd made with his father, in order to secure our salvation. Because we have a Savior who suffered such personal discomfort for us, we are willing to suffer that same kind of discomfort for the sake of others. That's why Jeremiah is faithful. That's why he remains in Jerusalem, remains at his post, doesn't go AWOL. That's why Paul was able to endure the kinds of things he did. How easy it would be for him to say, fine, 
you know, that's it. I've had enough. Uh, you know, this, somebody else can, can do this. But Christ had called him and given him a stewardship, and he was faithful. And so think about where you are. Think of the people God has put in your path, whether friends or family, children, uh, the opportunities he's giving you for ministry inside the church, outside of the church. It can be hard. It can cause personal discomfort. It, can, it might cause physical uh, discomfort, sleepless nights sometimes. Uh, it may cause emotional discomfort, inward discomfort with turmoil or anguish of heart, whatever it might be. Uh, and yet that's part of the price of faithfulness. And the Lord knows. The Lord knows better than we do the price of faithfulness to a stewardship. Well, Jeremiah certainly demonstrates that here. He's there. He's in the city suffering siege along with the very people he's trying to call to repentance. And in this case now trying to call to obedience to just surrender to the inevitable will of God in the destruction of the city. The fact is, neither Jeremiah nor Paul, not even Jesus, could minister from on high, could minister at a distance. They got involved, they were there, and they suffered personal discomfort as the price of faithfulness. Something else Jeremiah endures here uh, as part of his, his calling and his ministry is the pain of a false accusation. The pain of false accusation. Look, Again, at the scriptures, verse 13, as Jeremiah is heading out to go check on this, this uh, portion, to receive his portion, as it says, he was at the Benjamin Gate going out of the city. There's a sentry there, this uh, Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, uh, and he sees Jeremiah heading out of the city, and he seizes him. He says, you're deserting to the Chaldeans. Jeremiah said, no, that's a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But the man wouldn't listen to him. He seizes Jeremiah and brings him to the officials. That must have hurt. Because you wonder if Jeremiah didn't have thoughts of doing that very thing, but it said, no, I'm not going to do that. This is my place. This is where I belong. I'm going to stay here and be faithful to declare the word of the Lord. Perhaps made a difficult and conscious decision to stay put and then gets accused, as he's going out to receive his portion, of deserting. Now, you can understand why they might think he's doing that based on the message that he has been proclaiming. And yet that wasn't what he was doing. He was falsely accused. And not only is he falsely accused, but then they take him. It says, verse 15, they were enraged at Jeremiah. Obviously different officials from the one we saw in chapter 36 who encouraged Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch to hide when they read his scroll to the king, a group of men far more sympathetic toward Jeremiah, obviously dealing with a different group here. These officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him, and they imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, which had been made a, a prison. And verse 16 says, uh, that he would come to the dungeon cells. And perhaps the reason he says later he's going to die there to King Zedekiah is maybe just the damp conditions, the unhealthy conditions there, um, of the reason he thinks that he might might die. That may well not be hyperbole, uh, but just concern for his own health. But we see in verse 16, he's in the dungeon cells, remained there many days when the king sent for him and received him. The king questioned him, is there any word from the Lord? Um, and Jeremiah says, yes, you'll be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon. There's faithfulness for you. 
Uh, he, he gives the message the Lord gives him to say, regardless of the price. And then Jeremiah immediately confronts the king about his imprisonment. What wrong have I done to you? What have I done to your servants of this people? You've put me in prison. By the way, where are all those prophets who said none of this was going to happen? Hmm? Jeremiah's a little irked here. You can tell that the, the time in Jonathan's dungeon hadn't improved his, his, uh, his temper a great deal. Uh, he confronts the king. Why am I in prison? What about those prophets who said this wasn't going to happen? Why am I the one who's in prison when what I said came true? Right? Jeremiah's a little bit irritated here, and understandably so. Where are your prophets who prophesied, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land? Now he does. He, he becomes very polite. Here, O my lord, the king, let my humble plea come before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, lest I die there. And King Zedekiah gives the orders, and they, they release him to the court of the guard, which at least would have been uh, an opportunity to have some sunshine. And it says they provided bread for him until there just wasn't anything left in the city uh, to, to give him. And so he remained in the court of guard. You get the impression with Zedekiah, it's kind of like whoever he talked to last, that's his position, you know, uh, especially in 38 where he just goes back and forth, whoever he heard from last. But the pain of a false accusation, uh, you're deserting to the Chaldeans. Jeremiah says, no, that's a lie. And not only so, not only to be falsely accused, but then to be beaten and treated the way that he was. You know, the pain of having people turn on you, accuse you uh, uh, falsely of things can, can be extremely painful. Again, an example from the New Testament, uh, that in the, in the ministry of Paul, chapter, Acts chapter 21, uh, book of Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul has returned to Jerusalem. Uh, remember, he's sailing back to Jerusalem uh, concerns about what will happen to him there. And Paul says, well, you know, even even if uh, I'm imprisoned, he says in chapter 21, verse 13, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Well, he's in Jerusalem in, in chapter 21, verse 26. Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So he's there, he's, he's doing something very honorable, he's doing something right. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place where they previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, and all the city was stirred up, the people ran together, they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, then the Romans step in and, and, and grab Paul and stop this lynching from taking place and restore order. This man brings Gentiles into the temple. He's defiled this holy place. Paul wouldn't do that. Granted, they may not like some of his teaching, but Paul, in fact, had gone there and and had gone through a ritual of purification. He was treating it with respect. He was doing the things that he should be doing, and he's accused falsely 
of bringing Gentiles in and defiling the temple, just showing no regard for it at all. False accusations uh, can sometimes be uh, part of the price of faithfulness. People don't like what you're doing. They don't like who you are. They don't like what you stand for. They don't like something you said. And taking what they think they know about you make all kinds of false accusations. Early Christians had to deal with that. Christians today have to deal with that as well. Sometimes generally, sometimes personally and particularly. But that can be part of the price of faithfulness. And then the last thing that is mentioned here in chapter 38 is more generally uh, just misunderstanding. Look at, uh, in chapter 38, look at verse 4. The officials said to the king, let this man be put to death. He's weakening the hands of the soldiers, the hands of all the people, by speaking such words to them. This man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. Complete misunderstanding of the word of the Lord, of Jeremiah, what Jeremiah is about. And notice Zedekiah, behold, he's in your hands. The king can do nothing against you. Who? The king. What well, can do nothing against you? What, what kind of king is this? You know, got a rubber band for a, for a backbone. And of course, of course, you'll notice how he gets out of this. It's a eunuch. It's an Ethiopian, not even an Israelite. This is Ethiopian court official, Ebed-Melech, whose name means servant of the king. He goes, to the, he goes to the king and says, look, these men did evil. This isn't right. Uh, they cast him into this cistern. Point seeming to be uh, that they could leave him there and he would just be forgotten and, and starve to death. So they technically didn't really kill him, uh, but they put him in a place where he would be sure to die. Pretty quickly. Well, Ebed Malik goes to the king and says, you know, this is this is wrong. And so, true to form, verse 10, the king says, take three men with you from here uh, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. Again, it's you know, whoever talks to the king last. And so Ebed Malik does this. And in one of the most touching verses of scripture, he goes out of his way to get some cloth, some old clothes and he lowers that down to Jeremiah because he's got to pull him up out of this cistern, maybe out of some mud. And he says, here, use, use this cloth to pad your armpits as you put the ropes under them to, as I lift you out. Just that, that act of compassion toward Jeremiah is striking in, in the context, especially where everything's going against Jeremiah. People want to kill him. They reject what he has to say. They accuse him of being a traitor. They accuse him of, of being a seditionary, of, of undermining the defense of the city. And here this lowly court official provides Jeremiah with this padding for the ropes when he's going to lift him out. No one would have found fault if he just said, here's the rope, you know, wrap it around you, I'm going to pull you out. But he puts down this, this cloth, this material to provide padding for Jeremiah as, as he lifts him out. A misunderstanding, this, this complete lack of, of, of understanding what Jeremiah is about, and it must have hurt, seeking, not seeking the welfare of the city, but its harm. That's all he has been seeking, is the welfare of the city, calling them to repent, to turn from their idolatry, to turn to their covenant God. And they refused to do so, and they brought this on themselves, and they say, Jeremiah is seeking the harm of the city. Just quick examples again from... The New Testament, 
2 Corinthians 1, 15-17, Paul relates a very personal experience of misunderstanding here. Verse 15, Paul says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 15. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh or did he say yes, yes, no, no at the same time? He wanted to make this visit. They were thinking that he would make this visit, but he didn't make the visit. And some people were saying, well, you know, he's like Zedekiah. It's yes, no, no, yes, who knows what he's going to do next. So this misunderstanding. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 23. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. It was out of that love that Paul decided not to make that visit, and yet, apparently word gets out, well, he doesn't care about you, or he, he's non-committal. He can't stick with what he said he's going to do. And so Paul knows what it is to be misunderstood. The fact is, if you get involved with people, that there will be times when they misunderstand your motives, when they take what you do in the wrong way, when they take what you say and misconstrue it and use it against you. The reality is... The price of faithfulness and being involved with people is that you will at times be misunderstood. Your motives will be misunderstood, your words, your actions will be taken as hateful when in fact it's meant with nothing but love. And that's just reality of ministry. Jeremiah experiences that. Paul experiences that. Any faithful servant of the Lord, any faithful believer who's serving the Lord and involved with people Family, friends, church, whatever it might be, at one time or another we'll experience that uh, instance of being misunderstood. And it is, it is painful. But we also have to remember the alternative is not to be unfaithful. We can't decide, well, you know, fine, I'm just going to throw in the towel, I'm just going to quit. Um, the alternative uh, is, is to walk away. We can't do that. We don't do that. But rather, we have to remember that the Lord is the judge. John, Jonathan Edwards, when he was voted out of his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, in the 1700s, preached his final sermon uh, there in the pulpit. At least final sermon as the pastor. They asked him to come back as the interim while they looked for somebody else, which is a little weird, but he did it. Um, but his final sermon as a pastor, departing, uh, he, he makes a point. He says, you know, we will meet one day before the judgment bar of God, and he will sort this out. And we will put our case in his hands, and he will determine who is in the right here. Paraphrasing, that's effectively what he said. But, you know, when he says that, uh, he's just reflecting what the Scriptures teach, that we leave it in the Lord's hands. We serve the Lord, we remain faithful uh, to turn is not an option, and we leave the evaluation, and we leave the outcome in the Lord's hands. And I would leave you with these words, 1 Corinthians 4, where we started. 
but the, the whole paragraph. Notice what Paul says. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Jeremiah knew that so he could remain faithful. Paul knew that so he could remain faithful. You and I need to know the same thing when we pay the price of faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these faithful servants of yours in the Scriptures. Above all, we thank you, Father, that Jesus, you, Lord Jesus, were faithful in carrying out that stewardship given to you to redeem your people. Lord, help us to be faithful to you in those opportunities and ministries that you put in our way, the people that we were involved with, to serve you well, not to give up, but to serve you as best we can and to leave the outcome and the evaluation to you, our Lord. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.